Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. With me this week is Brian Salvatore. Brian, the Baseball Prospectus 2016 Annual is now in stores and online. You can buy it. I wrote stuff for it. But in that vein of shameless self-promotion, if you could pitch a book on any Mets topic related to the 2016 season, what would it be? It would be a um, a book about the proposed apartment shared by Bartolo Colon and Noah Syndergaard. Uh, Syndergaard has been reaching out to Colon via social media looking for a roommate. I would, uh, I would encourage that to happen and, and write about the hilarity and magic that would ensue from that pairing. I actually considered my quote-unquote book topic for an article this year, if I can make it work. I was always, I'm always sort of curious about guys when they first get called up, and I've talked about this on the show before, sort of what's their life, their life is like, mm-hmm. like whether they go apartment hopping or hotel room hopping or crash. Or when Dylan G lives in the saddest place in the universe. Oh, I think it was John Maine. Oh, was it John Maine? It was okay, John Maine was, was like living in like this like windowless hotel uh, room basement, like the Holiday Inn or something for uh, yeah. for months. But it just sort of brought and sort of crystallized for me when Matt Reynolds uh, was called up for the World for Series, the World Series essentially for the uh, the, the uh, playoffs with no like, and you know like hotel rooms in that area are hard to come by under the best of circumstances. With the Mets in the playoffs, it's probably a lot harder than that. So it's sort of you know trying to like find the locker room his first day and like what was he eating, that kind of stuff. Something like that for a new uh, a new call up would be interesting for me. I agree. This is uh, somewhat unfortunate timing because most weeks I would have gone with a Netflix and chill related uh, opening question with the BMets announcing their Netflix and chill promotion mm-hmm. April 12th, but it just came in too tight under the wire and I already had an opening question topic. I do think we need to talk about this a little bit though. I'm going to miss it by a day. I'm a little bit sad. Oh, that's a bummer. I'm planning on going up that first weekend and catching over to Monday to see the first game in the Harrisburg series, but not the second one. And uh, you know, having been to a fair number of April evening weeknight games, by the end of those games, usually the local homeless population outnumbers the actual number of fans in attendance. <laughs> it's not going to be a packed house for Netflix and chill night. What exactly is the promotion? I don't know. They haven't said anything. It's just Netflix. And jo- Look, it's done the job. They've gotten uh, an incredible amount of media attention. I saw the SB Nation mother site did a piece on it. Hardball, Hardball Talk did as well. So it's like some sort of marketing. It's some sort of publicity. I assume they're just going to show like Netflix stuff on the video board there. I don't know. Last year I was there for Flag Day. And they did a bunch of like flag day related videos on the video board. One like color like, guard routines? No, it's just like talk like flag history things, but involving like one of the BMET's mascots holding an American flag. There's like one towards the end where he was like literally in like totally like, the shining city on a hill, like looking down in some valley in <laughs> Western New York. Western New York or the Southern Tier. Something like that. I don't know exactly how it breaks down. It's upstate. We'll just call it upstate. Um <laughs> Just like holding an American flag. I think it might have been the Gazden flag. I don't remember. I was well into the second game of the doubleheader at that point. 
but this is better than i don't know it got the more attention certainly because i'm the only person that remembers that flag day stuff i'm pretty sure but it's been <laughs> seared into my brain this is episode 170 amazing avenue audio nothing is happening time of year when nothing happens okay carlos torres cleared waivers probably gonna go to japan or korea or something and try to figure out a way to get eric pames out it, the uh the mets signed a minor league catcher today i saw that i did see that Very that's all i got <laughs> ray willie gomez is a great name it is a great name but he's <laughs> he got like an invite to spring training never gotten above double a which just goes to prove you just always need catchers in spring training mm-hmm. you just need as many catchers as possible because i believe nevin ashley is going to be in spring training too i believe he also got an invite yeah, yeah. so we're just gonna clean out the inbox because nothing else to talk about i mean the carlos torres thing we'll cover in our bullpen preview because chris mcshane has a strong take on it really wanted to get that out there that's like six weeks from now <laughs> so we always do the bullpen preview last So we'll get right to your electronic correspondence, and before we do email, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 170. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group in, at Facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. You can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Brian Salvatore. You can follow him on Twitter at Brian Needs an App. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And we do, of course, have a voicemail number, which I will plug again, because why not? It's 805-500-METS. That's 805-00-6387 for those of you that don't have a touchtone phone, which I imagine is most of you at this point. <laughs> don't have the little letters. Can be. I guess the they had them on the Motorola Razor. If you still have a Motorola Razor, the letters are there. Actually, I, I think if I think if you open up your iPhone, I'm gonna look right now. I didn't even think about uh, that. Like I'm, I never actually I'm, make uh, calls on this keypad. Oh yeah, the letters are there. Okay, well you could just look at that then. I guess I like that touch tone phone joke too, but did not prove to be particularly uh, accurate, which makes me sad. It's the thought that counts. I know I've been I've been just swinging and missing lately. I made a joke on Twitter last week about uh, the MySpace dude trying I to convince that. the Giants to sign Tim Lincecum because he'd pay for it. I made a joke about neither of them being relevant since 2008, but he actually won the Cy Young in 2009. It was an all-star in 2010. And I don't even think by 2008 MySpace was relevant. Poor MySpace Tom. He did okay for himself. I'm pretty sure that guy's all right. <laughs> you don't have to feel sorry for him. Yeah. Um, the joke didn't work. It, like, it worked really well in my head, but it just isn't actually accurate, which is too bad. Anyway, our first email is from Will. Gentlemen, last year Atlanta essentially bought Tuki Toussaint from Arizona in exchange for agreeing to take on a terrible contract, the form of Bronson Arroyo. As I recall, it was widely considered to be a brilliant move by the Braves. In signing Suspedis to a contract that includes an opt-out after one year, it seems that for $27.5 million, the Mets have purchased two, in addition to Suspedis, an extra comp pick next year in the event Suspedis opts out 
This seems to be a shrewd move by the Mets. Am I looking at this correctly? If so, how much value do you place on the extra draft on the extra draft pick? Great pod, Will. So, and yeah, it's nice to have that. Absolutely. Um, it only really factors in for free agents in in rare instances in like one year deals or, or deals like this with a with a really early opt out because like this, there's no additional value in a potential David Price comp pick for the Red Sox seven years from now. Right. There's just there's you can't project out that far. You can't even assuming he's going to be worth it then, which he probably won't be. Looking at general baseball player aging curves. You know, what's the value of a supplemental pick eight years from now? Uh, same even really for Jason Hayward, I think, in sort of an opt-out situation. I mean, you don't know that there's going to be the same system three years from now in the Hayward instance because of the collective bargaining agreement's up for renewal, and I assume they're going to do something related to that will be on the table, given how effective it's been at depressing free agent salaries so far, unless you're Ian Kennedy. I think just the idea of looking at sort of three-year windows in general is a good idea. Like You just don't know what your team's going to look like three or four years from now, so it doesn't really factor in. I mean, you see it more, and really the whole compensation system, going back to the old uh, Elias system, was about giving compensation to teams losing homegrown players they developed and couldn't afford to extend or resign. Now that said, yeah, sure, it is a nice little bonus to have that available if he does decide to opt out uh, there's also you know more variance in a one-year deal you know Cespedes could miss half the season this year mm-hmm. and in, in an instance like that or even somewhat severe underperformance they're going to get double tapped because they're going to get not get the performance that they're paying for and then you have the likely opt in at the end of that for two years and 47 million if that were to happen yeah, I tried to do a little research today about the number of active major leaguers taken with the numbers in the draft that will be likely the supplemental round next year. Yeah, like in the 30s, basically. Yeah, and it, it's kind of hard to find exact um, picks for that. But it's it's an area where there certainly has been success. But it's not it's not exactly 1-1 we're talking here either. Lots of 30-second picks busts completely it's not like this is a guaranteed major leaguer that you're taking i mean no 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 place in the draft is guaranteed but it's it's there's a there's a relatively large gamble here and is it a good gamble to take absolutely is it a good thing to have in this instance absolutely but i think it's hard to assign a real value to that pick you're signing suspicious either way yeah what he does for your team for the next one to three years the most recent research i could find was from uh, matthew murphy at the hardball times in 2014 so roughly a pick around in the 30s is going to give you about $13 million of surplus value, which I think jives with other research I've read about the value of prospects and stuff like that. Um, that's good enough for me. But why was this deal made? It had nothing to do with a, a qualifying offer attached pick. Is you know the market bottomed out for him and the team wants to win now. And, you know, if they get to the playoffs again this year and do well and Cespedes plays well, I'll get another plug-in for the uh, Baseball Texas Annual. His uh, Pocota projection for next year is a four-win season, which I think I'd sign up for right now. Mm-hmm. And, and he's he, opting out if he's a four-win season. Absolutely. And then he opts out, and they get a 
a 32nd pick in the 2017 draft. It's, you know, it's a good situation all all around. Uh, They didn't have a qualifying offer attached to him, and all that stuff still happened. It would be a good situation all around. You know, it's nice that they have it, but I don't think it's uh, particularly important to the deal. I thought it was a nice, you know, a nice little supplemental bonus there, especially because his first contract did not allow for the qualifying offer. So it's nice that they were able to get that under the contract. Our next email is from Xander. Jeffrey, I know you to be a proponent of rigid ordinal rankings. I think Xander's being sarcastic there. So I asked you to definitively order the pleasingness of these pitchers on the best day of their late career. Levon Hernandez. Orlando Hernandez, Bartolo Colon, much obliged, Xander. This is right up my alley. This is a great question. This is a great question. So there's going to be some recency bias that's unavoidable here, I feel like. Of course. But I'll start with El Duque. And I think people forget how good he was in 2006 and 2007. Oh, he was excellent. He was an above-average starter he was above when, average, he, yeah. when he was healthy. Mm-hmm. Which, like, like a lot of... Some of Omar's signings in those in that era wasn't as often as you might have liked. But he was going to start game one of the National League Divisional Series before he got hurt warming up. <laughs> he, jog- was it, he jogged and slipped on a baseball? I am believe I, am so. Am I remembering this correctly? In my mind, it's a banana peel, but it's, it's not really. It's definitely a baseball. It's, it's a good thing Twitter wasn't around back then. That's like the most LOL Mets moment. Like literally, LOL Mets gets overused way too much it's like a meta thing now it gets used ironically if you want like a true lol mets moment orlando hernandez having to miss the entire 2006 playoffs because he slipped on a baseball during warm-ups which may or may not be remembered accurately by this show is a pretty good one but at the time it wasn't an unreasonable choice no i was gonna say i I think that i feel like he was about as good as glavin that year yeah and he was certainly Better than John Mayden that year. Yes. <laughs> and uh, who was probably better than Steve Traxel that year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pedro was that hurt. that team win 95 games. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pedro was hurt at the end of the yeah, year, too. So, uh, but still, in the playoffs, I would have much rather El Duque, especially because El Duque, you know, has the reputation as a big game pitcher, whether that's real or not. You know, it's it's a nice, uh, nice little bit of comfort when you're going up against a team that you know, has a much, much deeper pitching staff than you. It's nice to know you got a guy who doesn't buckle under the pressure of the big the big lights, you know. Instead, we got a lot of John Main that postseason. So I'm trying to think the most sort of memorable late career El Duque start. And I remember, I didn't watch this game. I think I was working, but I remember listening to the post game when I was coming home from work, driving home, I'm pretty sure. I went back to Baseball Reference to confirm it happened, and it did. His July 14th start against the Pirates, he threw 130 pitches in six innings. 2006 or seven? 2007. Okay. My goodness. It did happen. He got a no decision. They won. And then he came back on normal rest and threw 109 and got the win and threw seven (laughs) innings. In a season where he may or may not have actually been 41 years old. I couldn't possibly speculate. He was I mean, cool. He had the he had the weird mechanics. Absolutely, he had a little funk, and he was very much full in the different arm angles. Take a little off. It was it was very Bartolo ish. It was more junk than Bartolo, but it was Bartolo ish, which is high praise. Absolutely, Levon Hernandez not as fun to watch late in his career. 
No. Here are his hits per nine. I know hits per nine. You know, Babip luck and whatnot. I mean, Levon Hernandez, when he got hit, he got hit hard. Mm-hmm. But his hits per nine, there was no bad luck involved here. From 2007 on, 10.9, 12.9, 10. 10.8, 9.2, 10.2, 11.2. Oof. It's not good. 9.2 was his one, like, decent pop-up season with a bad Nationals team in 2010. And I feel like he threw, like, almost a complete game shutout against the Mets that year at some point. Absolutely. I remember watching that game. I also remember watching that game. Uh, Her- Levon Hernandez is... He's he's a glacier, right? He's he's impressive from afar. Mm. We don't want to go hang out in front of the glacier, you know. Like on a game by game basis, he wasn't that great. But at the end of the season, you look back and you say, "This old, out of shape dude pitched a ton of innings this season." Yeah. That's kind of cool. That uh, aforementioned 2010 season with the Nationals, he threw 211 innings for a bad Nationals team. Yeah, I don't know if you're um, if you're this type of nerdy to get this reference but my friends and i in college used to call him the galactus of pitchers he just eats innings he just eats you know he's the eater of worlds he's yeah, the yeah, eater yeah. of innings you know um every team needs a guy like that and the problem for levon too is he's just never was going to top the ridiculous eric Gregg game in the 98 playoffs <laughs> when he struck out at 15 with the strike zone roughly the size of eric Gregg. yeah he had a 15 and a half percent k rate that year by the way 15 and a half 15, i mean it was a it was 15 years ago, 18 years ago, the strikeout rates were significantly lower. It was probably average-ish or a tick below, but still. And he was never a strikeout pitcher. No. Uh, like his older brother. Which brings us to Bartello, which my phone does look autocorrect to all caps <laughs> as I look at my notes. <laughs> and it's not really about performance, which, if I'm honest, is closer to Levon than uh, Orlando nowadays. But on his best days, talking about his best days, he had that near-perfect game against the Mariners, Mm -hmm. which I was listening to at work, and like, it just would have been the perfect capstone if he had pulled it off. (laughs) He had that game late in 2015 against the Marlins where he was just sort of cruising along. He had the the behind-the-back flip. You get Fireman Bart in the playoffs, you know, bridging... From Matt Harvey in Game Three, striking out the side the first inning, or striking out Bryant against the Cubs, he's like almost. It's like there's a certain whimsy to him. It's like a Hal. Say- he's a Hal Ashby protagonist. <laughs> Even on his worst days, he still throws that ball up in the air like it doesn't matter at all, and that makes it an enjoyable thing to watch. I mean, there's all the side stuff too. The stories oh, yeah. I can't repeat on the podcast. The stories I can repeat on the podcast, like him watching Home Alone 2 back-to-back on a <laughs> cross-country uh, flight when he was with Oakland. That's all he did, just watch Home Alone 2 back-to-back. Watch it twice. That's close to the most endearing thing sure. I can think of. Yeah, You know, the videos of him uh, working out this off-season at Estadio Bartolo Colon that are all over the internet. Him shaking his belly in the dugout. Sure, handing out candy. Helmet falling off, hitting doubles up the gap. I mean, I wrote this in, at, at BP after the Mets clinched the pennant, sort of Bartolo Colon is an easy lead. And he is. You know, he makes those of us that have to commentate on this team, our, our lives are a lot easier to have Bartolo Colon in it. But when he's on, it's, you know, when he's facing the Marlins, Braves, Mariners at home, Mariners, <laughs> Phillies. Brewers, you know, it's 
it's something else to watch. I think on his best days, he is by far the most entertaining number five starter in baseball. I'll look this up quickly. He's got a 3.70 RA season left in him. I don't know when it's going to be. Sometime between now and when he's 48. I hope he goes after the Julio Franco record. How old was Franco his last season with the Mets? 46? 49? Oh, is he 49? He wasn't that old, was he? Hang on. All right, you look up that. I'll get his his game logs from last year. (laughs) Okay. And Moyer was 49, I thought. I didn't think Julio Franco made it. Because Julio Franco made a big deal about wanting to play till 50. He did, but he wasn't that close to 50 at okay, the time. Okay, let's see. He played in 2007 for the Mets. I remember it He well. was born... He was born in 58. Yeah, dude. 49, you're right. How did someone not give him a contract to play until he was 50? He did. Uh, oh, that's right. He was traded that year. He, he went up. Or I guess the Mets released him, and the Braves picked him up at the end of the year. After his start on May 5th, when he struck out nine and seven and two thirds against Baltimore, he was five and one with the 2.9 ERA. Had walked one batter. <laughs> and somebody, perhaps me, may have tweeted things about, uh, only half jokingly about him starting the All Star game that year. <laughs> Didn't quite work out that way, but I regret nothing. Shame retweeters on the internet. I regret nothing. Bartolo Colon's awesome. Yeah. I'm just upset there's no Bartolo Colon player giveaway. They need to rectify that before opening day. Mets marketing people. That's a bobblehead waiting to happen. Sure. So to answer your question, Xander. It's Bartolo Cologne. It's Cologne, then El Duque. Yeah. Then Levon. Our next email is from Rick. And look, we've done 170 episodes. I've read every one of your emails in their entirety on the show. Even the really, really long treatise from the guy in Germany. They just ended up putting, I think, German music under at some point. I can't read this entire email. (laughs) It's really long. So I will summarize as best I can. I'd say Rick has some quick hits, but they're not that quick. He has some hits. Yeah, there are some hits here. This is his first email to the podcast. Rick, you might want to self-edit a little bit. Talk about how he's 37 and has suffered a great deal with the team. He's read both the Dickey book and the Alderson book. He's happy that he came across the podcast. I mean, the podcast is not the best influence here since we never self-edit. We just go really, really long. He learned it from you, well, Jeff. He did. He learned it from me. We just have a couple of questions and statements for the podcast crew. Jeffrey, please note these are my questions. Are in no particular order. We're just going to do them in the order they are. The first one's short. In the NL, only seven teams seem to compete for five playoff spots. Mets, Nats. St. Louis, Cubs, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and L.A., which we probably have to throw in Arizona this year, too. Yeah. We should be part of this contending group in 2016, 2017, 2018, hopefully even longer. Do you both agree? Sure. Yeah. Three-year window seems fair. That's, uh, you have all the young pitching is still under contract at below market values. It's your best chance to still get good years from Wright and Granderson. You're right, because... 
he's still reasonably young and healthy. I mean, not really healthy or young, but as young and healthy as he'll probably be. And you still have Duda for at least 16 and 17, right? Yep. So you still got, again, it's sort of that cost control talent. You have the young position players running the front end of their peaks. You know, that's, is that going to be year in and year out? I mean, look at the Nats. You could argue the Nats in 2000, I can do math, beginning of 2012 had a similar, if not better, core of young pitching and position players with some, you know, Granderson and Cespedes-like veterans sprinkled in there as well. And, you know, they won the division in 2012 and 14, disappointed in 13 and 15. That kind of stuff can happen over a 162-game season. But you know, their name was always sort of in the hat. So that's sort of what your bar is here. Yeah, I think the Mets can compete for the next three or four seasons. You know, beyond that, it's tough to project out much further. But you don't need yeah, whatever. As as I'm sure you know, Rick, having listened to this podcast for over a year, we're very much in touch with our own mortality. This year can be a little depressing, especially when Greg's on. We all be dead in four years, so <laughs> take what you can get while you can get it. And it is silly to make sort of, I think, proclamations on February 1st, but I think the Mets probably have an easier path to the division. But the wild card might be a tough ask if they don't win, given the strength of those other teams. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, I thought, then again, I thought it would be, what, 84, 85 wins for second wild card last year, and it was 95. So you just don't know year in and year out. But I think that's a fair enough group. For number two, he opines on a Matt Harvey extension that is worth 142 over seven years with a $31 million option or $6 million buyout, so 167 over eight. He did the math correctly, too, which is impressive because he included the buyout in the seven-year contract. Not a lot of people always do that. As time goes on, my expectation is that free agent war will eventually exceed $10 million per win. We're getting close. He sort of does the dollars per war analysis and thinks it'll be a good deal for the Mets, which it probably will be. But he thinks that Harvey will be looking for much more money in free agency and that the organization should only give out reasonable extensions and not mega deals. Sure, that's nice in a vacuum. Uh, As for the Harvey part of it, should he take a seven-year, $160 million extension right now? It's... Not the worst thing in the world for a dude that's already had one Tommy John surgery. But he won't. He won't. He very much seems like a bet-on-himself kind of guy. And the downside is what? Ian Kennedy? And he gets five years and $70 million at the end of this? Look, that dude, if you... if Was it a ESPN documentary about him? Yeah, it was a when 30... He, it was a, thir- well, not 30 for 30. It was a, whatever it is. They're a little... He's 60. 60. He's 60, yeah. Yeah, when he was talking about holding out when he was, you know, for a uh, a bonus, was it 2 million, I think, he told himself he was yeah, worth? Yeah, the Angels gave him, like, one... We're going to give him, like, one and a half as a supplemental or second round pick. Yeah, and, and he said he wouldn't do it for less than two. And he bettered himself then. And if there's yep. ever a chance to take the money, that's the chance to take the money. 
And you know, he could have blown out his arm in college very, very easily. Sure, now there's it a track, to plenty of guys. Yeah, now there's a track record in place of him being able to succeed at a very, very high level. He's going to better himself again. And not even – we don't even have to go as far as the Ian Kennedy deal. He's made enough between his bonus coming out of college and his ARB 1 award this year, and he'll get a decent ARB 2 next year, that he's in a position where he doesn't have to take an under-market extension. Yeah, 100, saying 160 million is an undermarket extension is like, eh, whatever. But it is. Mm-hmm. So he has the enough money that he can. It, it it's not quite fuck you money, but in this case, it's fuck you money. At least as far mm-hmm. as the Mets are concerned. And there's other issues in play here. We know sort of the relationship between him and ownership is not great. Probably not even not much better after his Bravo special, <laughs> which also could have been on the agenda for this week, but isn't. Yeah, yeah. so much. And from ownership in the front office's point of view, if he walks in 2018, it's easier to sell that with all the other young pitchers they have at house right now. And Boris makes a good boogeyman. Sure. You and, know, um, yeah, that, people are not they're not going to be as upset when he walks because you can blame Boris. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, the, the situation can change three years now. Again, you don't know what this team's going to look like. So the there might be different things in play then. And do you really want to extend a guy this far out for that kind of money? Again, it's like there just aren't reasonable extensions anymore. You're getting stuff close to market value. I mean, 7162 is under market, but it's not egregiously under market considering you're covering, you know, two RBRs in there. Because someone like Justin Verlander, it's risky giving extensions out to pitchers two, three years from free agency because it can go south in a hurry when it goes. And the Mets, you know, we can talk up ownership and spending money this offseason. They can't really afford, by all accounts, a $160 million mistake right now. He jumps off that for number three. Is making pull it back up? Yes. Based on the question, discussion and question two, the Mets must eventually trade Matt Harvey. So he suggests using him for 2016 and 2017 and then making a move because player development and bring back players that will help the team because they must... Uh, player development discipline on the strength of the team. They must adhere to it like the Cardinals. Otherwise, you end up like the Phillies, Braves, Marlins, and the Mets and Yankees from 91 to 93. So I had kind of assumed that the relationship was bad enough that they might consider a trade even as soon as this offseason, certainly by next offseason. But that was pre Wilmer Flores crying, essentially. And <laughs> pre the Cespedes deal. And pre the Cespedes deal. Now you got to look like if they can handle the arm raises for the arms. And because of the Cespedes deal, I don't see a reason they shouldn't be able to. In my 2018, Matt Harvey is an arb three. DeGrom is a super two arb three. I think that's right. He's a super two arb two. Yeah, screw up super two arb two. Super two arb two. I believe. Wheeler is a, uh, a straight arb two. And I think. 16, 17. I don't think either Syndergaard or Matts are even arb one yet. So really, you're not looking at much more than... You're probably looking at less than what they're paying for one year of Cespedes. For the three of them. 
Which is insane. It is. So there's no reason to not let this play out as long as possible. And if you're not in it the 2018 deadline for whatever reason, you deal them. If you are, maybe you take the compensation pick. Flags fly forever, man. I don't disagree with that. I mean, my previous thoughts on this podcast when this has come up in email questions, which is often, is that you move them after this year and sort of use the David Price deal as a template. And I don't think this front office is dealing for Willie Adamas <laughs> as their main piece, but at least there's precedent for that. There's a there's a template you can follow. Like three years of a cost-controlled ace just doesn't happen. That's why the Marlins – look at what the Marlins were asking for Jose Fernandez for why it doesn't happen. Rick uh, says here that he would think that the Hall should be similar or better than what they got for Dickey. It should be better than what they got for Dickey. You know, we all love Dickey. I mean, I love Dickey. I mean, they got... They got got an incredible Hall, but that Hall doesn't always work out. Right, and it's worked out better than you would have expected given what Syndergaard and Darno were as prospects at the time. Yes. Is the other thing. So you've got to look at it at the time of the deal. They're basically getting two top 50 prospects, which is good. That's great. They don't always turn into... Noah Syndergaard and Travis Darno. Another cheap Pakoda plug. Uh, Pakoda has Travis Darno, a healthy Travis Darno, as one of the ten best players in the National League this year. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we, the other thing to consider is, you know, the the Mets did get John Buck in that deal, and that's a funny little footnote. But John Buck was eventually turned into um, Dilson Herrera. <laughs> so you know, I mean, primarily the, it was Marlon Bird, but yeah, right, sure. But, for for the purposes of this fairy tale, yeah, it was it was Dilson Herrera for John Buck straight up, and uh, you know so that deal is never going to happen again. At the time of the trade, yes, maybe you get two fifty two top fifty prospects, a veteran, and uh, a flyer, which is essentially what they got at the time of the deal. You know, but that that's worked out. I don't think we can ask for the actual. The well, I think actual you can return. ask for. I think you can absolutely ask for two fifty top fifty prospects for Matt Harvey for one year of Matt Harvey. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, now, is it going to work out? Again, is it going to work out as well as Syndergaard and Darno? Probably not. And that gets to the sort of the draft and development thing. Yeah, you got to do that. And their development has been good, but the overall talent in the system is down compared to what it was a few years ago. I mean, you still need clay to mold, however good your development system is. And prior results do not guarantee future performance, as they like to disclaim. And that applies to farm systems as well. I saw there was a discussion on Twitter of teams that have succeeded over the long haul without trading young talent, like prospect-level talent. And the Mets don't really count for that anymore because they traded Michael Fulmer for Ioannis Cespedes. If you even want to throw in, you know, Ganton Whalen for Reban Johnson or Casey Meisner for Tyler Clifford, be my guest. But it's tough to just do it with internal development you know the rays did it for a while are they claiming the cardinals is one of those teams yeah the cardinals still made trades though they traded for matt holiday they traded for uh hayward for hayward yeah and they've made deals it's just impossible i mean some teams do it more than others obviously but it's impossible Mm -hmm. to do it without at least trading a little bit from the farm which is fine that's the purpose of a farm system i think it's something i've reiterated over and over on this podcast and basically stolen from 
Kevin Goldstein and Jason Parks when they were doing up and in is that the purpose of a farm system, a minor league system, prospects, is to get major league players, quality major league players, whether it's turning those prospects themselves into major league players or trading them for major league players, however it works. You got to do a little bit of both. Number four, do you think the Mets should just leave Mats in the minors until April 20th or so? They don't need a fifth starter for a while. They have the weird schedule. I think as we're all well aware. And sign Juan Haribe to a minor league contract. They can carry 14 position players and just 11 pitchers until the team needs a fifth starter. They should carry 14 pit position players and 11 pitchers anyway. Every team should. It's mm. not a battle I'm not going to win. That's fine. Um, so you could do that, but you're just going to piss off Steven Matz. Uh, and you're presuming Juan Uribe is going to sign a minor league deal. Right. I mean, Rick even suggested, you know, if Matz gets injured in the minors, oh, well, he doesn't get service time or money. But it's not, so Ken Rosenthal wrote a good piece on this, I think, this morning, uh, sort of about his pitch talks experience and sort of the human element, we might call, in baseball. Like, the sabermetric move would be to keep Steven Matz down until April 20th. I don't think it—he's probably not Super 2 anyway. That would guarantee he's not Super 2. It's just not worth it. I mean, players—Joshian uh, would say this. It's sort of a, a straw man. Attack on sabermetrics is sabermetricians te- uh, treat players like strat cards. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's ever actually been true. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense to only carry four starters. Maybe you don't even use— Two or three starters the first week, so all the days off. Just don't piggyback. That's a bad idea. But, I mean, there's there's innings counts, and maybe you just want to let them try to get to some sort of a rotation, some sort of a rhythm. And I like Juan Uribe, but there's nowhere to play him. He'd be the sixth infielder. <laughs> uh, seventh. Seventh. Because they had the four starting infielders. Correct. He'd be the Tejada, seventh infielder. Tata Flores and then Uribe. Rick, you've only been listening for a little bit over a year. But way back in the early days of the podcast, I would rail about the Mets carrying six outfielders, which they did for much of the 2013 season. Uh, don't do remind you, me. Do you really want me to run of which was Jordani Valdespin? I think uh, Jason Pridey was in there too for a while, if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah. You don't want to hear me just... Losing it every week about them carrying seven infielders. Not carrying six is already stretching your limit. No, you should carry six. Front four, you're, you're starting four. You got a middle infield backup and a corner infield backup. They're ideally, not exactly just, doing that, but yeah, I, I would say ideally your corner infield backup can also, can also play, play corner, corner outfield. outfield. Yeah, yeah, sure. They can give Curtis Grandison a first base glove. It's fine. Sure. It's backup first base. I know people are freaking out, freaking out about it, but. Did you see hashtag mess Twitter today advocate for bringing back Ike Davis? No, but I'm not player? surprised. He just they need a right-handed first base person. Yeah, first of all. they don't need anybody. They they have plenty of people. Nick Evans is already in the Deuce and Bears, so that my my first choice is out. Oh, Who? Nick Evans. Yeah, Who? you know Josh Satin's still available though, which would I... just anger Mets Twitter even more. I'm telling you. They love him, too. I wouldn't be shocked if they bring him back in a minor league deal. Ideal lineup. He goes through his proposed lineup, which is not very different from our lineup in episode 169, but different from what Terry Collins suggested this week. I think the only difference is he flipped. 
That might be the same exact lineup. I think I had Cespedes third. He's got Cespedes fourth. He, we flip flop yeah. dude and Cespedes. So that's weird to me because, like, the suggested lineup that was leaking out was not lefty righty lefty righty, which does not sound like TC at all. Right. But it did have Conforto much lower than she actually be batting, which sounds exactly like Collins. Yep. So the nice thing is, we know lineups don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's February 1st. It matters today. Sure, but I'm saying the sabermetrically runs created per 27 outs, whatever you want to use. The ideal lineup versus the least ideal lineup that a team will actually use, so no pitcher batting third or whatever. Very few runs over the course of a season. But, you know, given how balanced this lineup is, like we talked about last week, and you don't need to cluster guys or really limit platoon moves. It's just a good lineup, one through nine. Just roll them out there and don't worry about it. It's nice. It's amazing, you know, looking at the lineup now that Neil Walker could potentially be batting seventh or eighth for this team. Sure. Think about the I the, think he the should be batting like, seventh. He's going to bat yeah. fifth. But I think he should bat seventh. Right. But none of it matters. But think about the lineup the team was trotting out there like July 7th last year. Hmm. You know, like, and then look at this lineup. I can find uh, – I can find this fast. Joel, you might know, is at Cajole Juice Esquire mm-hmm. on Twitter.com. Tweeted out the uh, there's some like CNN meme he did like does this offend you? It's just like the Mets lineup from like July 9th <laughs> or whatever with like Eric Campbell and Kevin Plowecki and John Mayberry Jr. in it. My computer's being uncooperative. You have to take my word for it. It's in my faves. It's in my 2015 faves or hearts, whatever they are now. But it's great. It doesn't matter. The lineup's gonna be good. There's some depth there. Like, if Wilmer Flores is in the lineup, he'll be batting eighth, too, and he's like an average major league hitter. These are all good things. It's weird. It's been a weird year of podcasts. It's only February 2016. It's probably all ends in pain. What I think a lot of us were anticipating for 2016 was another strong year of pitching but abysmal offense. And now it looks like if the pitching takes a step back, that may not be as big of a deal because we have an actual lineup. And that's weird. Strange days indeed. Most peculiar. My computer's not responding. I feel like the third computer this podcast has killed. (laughs) I'm going to need you to read the last email. Okay. I know what it is, but I'm going to need you to read it because it's just not going to load. This is from Johnny. Hello, Jeff and Co. What do you expect to start at each position this year in Vegas, Binghamton, and St. Lucie, respectively? Would be great to get your rotation predictions for these levels as well. Thanks, and keep up the amazing work. So we get this email every year, and I always hate it because I'm terrible at this game. And he included, like, I don't know what 27-year-old they're going to play in left field in Binghamton this year. (laughs) What minor league free agent signing I missed. Jairo Perez is going to get a promotion. Is he even still in the organization? I don't know. At least he didn't include Columbia, so I don't have to guess who gets like a full season assignment. But I'll do it because I do it every year. Vegas. It depends on who they want to keep stretched out. But for the rotation, I'm guessing uh, Gilmartin, Montero, Verrett, Yanoa, and Lugo. And if one of those first three make the opening day pen, which is not 
all that unlikely. Maybe you promote Gazelman or give Rainy Lara a shot. Prospects of note, I'm not giving you a 1 through 9 because I have no idea. <laughs> uh, Nemo will be there. Probably Matt Reynolds in more of a around-the-infield role. Chikini. So Chikini can play shortstop every day yeah. is my guess. Um, that's about all you're going to see for Vegas, and they'll fill it in with the usual, you know, TJ Rivera's, and I don't know if they brought Brandon Allen back again. Maybe they did. But those type uh, of dudes. <laughs> you're forgetting noted designated hitter Danny Mono. Oh, yeah, Danny Mono will be around. I know Wilfredo Tovar got picked up by somebody. I forget who. So I know Wilfredo Tovar. Brewers? I, I See, I want to guess the Brewers. The Brewers just always pick off Mets minor league free agents, it feels like. In double A, I really have no clue. My best guess is uh, Gazelman. Twins. Sorry, Twins got Tovar. Twins got Tovar. That makes sense. Yeah. They're basically the same team. Yeah. Gazelman, Kevin McGowan... Miller Diaz, Logan Taylor, Mickey Janis, and Scarlin Reyes. And I got to see that team a lot in April, so yeah. Get ready for top good. five first baseman Dom Smith. Good for me, yeah. Dom Smith will be there. Jeff McNeil, probably Ahmed Rosario, LJ Mazzilli, if that's still a thing that floats your boat. It's not awful on the position player side. There's some stuff there. Pitching's not great. Kill Morris in the bullpen. That um, really only Steve Sippa cares about that. Uh, and St. Lucie gets just you know I have no idea at this point. Uh, so I went with Chris Flexen, Corey Oswalt, Michael Gibbons, Josh Prevo, Matiris Arias, and Ricky Knapp again because why not? So yeah, the pitching depth in the system not so great anymore. But as you point out all the time, it's not so great anymore because of what's happening at the major. Yes, yes, sure. But yeah, it's not the rotation exercise is not as fun as it is some years. <laughs> Reach it. It's interesting. I've been listening to various Mets podcasts and caring about Mets prospects. How dare long you cheating that, on this podcast uh, with other I, Mets podcasts before this podcast? Mm-hmm. I, I'm 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 an honest man now. Mm-hmm. But names like Rainy Lara used to be exciting names, and now they're just like yeah. You know, Gabriel, you know, it was you up your quality of podcast listening if Randy Lara were exciting names on them. No, but like, you know, or you know, uh, you know, that was a name that got people really excited three, yeah. four years ago. And now he's he's fine. He is. He's going to log major league innings. That's not nothing. Yeah. No. Vegas is not be great I, I for feel... him, but Vegas isn't going to be great for any of those dudes. Yeah, it's going to be a rough, a rough year pitching line wise. Sean Gilmartin in Vegas is not. Go well, I have a feeling. Still a successful Rule Five draftee, though. Absolutely. Uh, and the other prospects of note in advance day were Becerra, Louis Guillorme, and eventually Udar Garcia. But yeah, it's uh, oh no, the system's not so good. Columbia's gonna be a really fun team. I'll say that. I don't know when I'm gonna get to see him, but it's gonna be a really fun team. A very good friend of mine lives in Colombia. I'm trying to find an excuse to go visit him and see some games. My wife just had a phone interview with University of South Carolina, so oh. that could work out well, theoretically. See, my wife's about to give birth to another baby, so that does not make me traveling yeah. make a lot of sense. 
but besides, you know, being the a ball home of the Mets until at least 2018, it's also within driving distance of five different minor leagues, which I can't really complain about. Also, they have glow in the dark uniforms. Yep. And a reasonable drive to St. Lucie. Yeah, you can do it in a day. It's a long day, but you can do it in a day. It's probably 11, 12 hours. I haven't actually Google Maps it, but... I wouldn't think it would be that long. Savannah to St. Lucie is like... Well, you might break. Maybe it's like 9, 10. Savannah to St. Lucie, I I feel like, is 7 or 8. Or 6 or 7. I know I've driven that before. 7 hours, 38 minutes. From Columbia? Yeah. Wow. That's not bad at all. That's very drivable. I'll keep that in mind for this year. Let's see how far to Atlanta. Whatever it is, add an hour and a half for traffic. Yeah, three hours and eight minutes, technically. (laughs) That's not bad at all, actually. No, it's not. You can get to the... You you get Carolina League stuff there, obviously. Southern League, Appy League. Mm -hmm. Sally and Florida State League are all drivable. Not bad at all. You probably even get up into like uh, some of the western, eastern league towns in eight, nine hours if you really wanted to. And I guess Richmond for the Flying Squirrels isn't that far either. About seven and a half hours as well to Tampa if that floats your boat. So, if you want to see a ball game in an absolutely terrible major league stadium, yeah. It's going to be you and me today waiting for the other shoe to drop in Tampa Bay. Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazonavenueaudio.com. That was a Mountain Goats reference, by the way. Uh, I'm aware. Yeah, I know you are. I'm just letting our listenership know. I was very happy because I made a Mountain Ghost reference in the... I'm going to plug the BP annual again. I made a Mountain Ghost reference <laughs> in the BP annual. Instead of taking it out, they actually expanded upon it in editing. That is nice. It is nice. I'm guessing that was a Woj move. He probably found the same Mountain Ghost MP3s on the Hampshire, uh, <laughs> like, internal server that I did in 2001. We'll now move on to your IFK Gothenburg update. They had their first friendly the 2016 season. They won 1-0 over Sarpsburg 8 of the Norwegian Tippeligan. Our favorite blonde Adonis up front, Per Gustav Engel, had the winner in the 84th minute. Interesting note, though, Walker Zimmerman... Is on trial there from FC Dallas, a defender that's been capped at all youth levels for the U.S., and was a first-round pick in the 2013 MLS Super Draft. Less interesting note, they have a new kit that I don't like. It's very white. They have some thicker blue stripes. It's a white collar. It's a little plain-looking. I don't love it. They no longer are. Uh, they no longer have an Adidas kit. They've gone to a new company. Not a huge fan. That's okay. Ryan, we'll wrap things up this week with our pop culture recommendations to get us through the last 15 or so days until spring training. What do you got? Uh, It's been a pretty good year for music so far. Uh, I recommend, obviously, the new Bowie album, but I think that's probably talked up quite a bit. I'm going to talk about the new Tortoise record, The Catastrophist. Is that any good? It's really good. I'm very, like, I have a weird relationship with Tortoise. They're very, very hit and miss for me. I really like it, except that the third track on it is a cover of David Essex's Rock On with vocals. It's the first album there's with vocals, and the cover is atrociously bad. So well, just skip track three. Are we not three. counting the, uh, the Tortoise, Bonnie, Prince, Billy? Uh, 
we're, we're talking tortoise tortoise proper okay. here. Not, talk, not talking the brave and the bold. I really um, like that album. That's a great album. Uh, the cover of Daniel. Go listen to that. The cover of Daniel by uh, Elton John is quite excellent on that album. But yeah, uh, the tortoise album. If you can skip track three, is quite good. And Yola Tango's uh, Georgia Hubbly sings on one song as well. And since Yola Tango is named after a Mets reference, it's kind of Mets related. You tied them together well. I guess I shouldn't plug Baseball for Texas 2016 again here. Once again, available at all fine booksellers and online at Amazon.com in both print and Kindle editions. But I was in Barnes & Noble to see if they had it in Glastonbury, Connecticut, which they did. Still a few copies left. Do you want to pick it up there? And while waiting to check out, I noticed that they, there were some uh, Calvin and Hobbes collections on like the bargain bookshelf. And I was thinking... Very nice. Many of our listeners, Ryan, might be too young to actually remember when Calvin and Hobbes was in the newspaper. God damn it. And they all they, all they do today is like go on the internet and read questionable content or something like that. <laughs> the oatmeal. Or the oatmeal, yeah. So I'm going to recommend the complete Calvin and Hobbes. I think I saw it at like 60 bucks on Amazon. We just passed the 20th anniversary of the start of Calvin and Hobbes and the 10th anniversary of the completion of Calvin and Hobbes, so... Really? That was, I believe, 2006, really? I believe, uh, no, it was uh, late 2005. Right. It was September 2005. Was it? Yeah. Or, or per, sorry, perhaps September is when it started. December 2005 is when it ended. Or am I 10 years off? Is it 30 and 20? Might be I feel 30 like you're and 30 and 20. Yeah, Might it's be 30 longer and 20, than that. Yeah. Okay. Hence my dismissive comments about millennials, of which I am technically one. I don't, I don't consider myself a millennial either. So how old are you? Uh, 33. I'll be 34 soon. I don't consider I will myself. also. So we are right on the on the cusp. Yeah, exactly. I think Slate at one point tried to call us the Jordan Catalano generation. <laughs> which does seem like something they would do. Yeah, that's that's a very Slate thing. So coming up on the podcast in the coming weeks, next week we have our spring training preview with Chris McShane. I don't think it's technically our last show before spring training officially starts. Pitchers and catchers report, but close enough. Chris, of course, will be going up again this year. So we'll talk about spring training and spring training-related things. After that, it's time to start position-by-position previews. There's a lot of positions to cover between now and April 1st. So we'll kick those off. I forget what's first. I don't remember. Lucas claimed one of them. Outfield, maybe. I don't know. I'll figure it out as we go along. We'll also have... It was a little different this year. When it was shorter... Since the Mets are like contenders... I'm just going to go with shorter team-by-team previews for all the National League teams, calling 10 minutes a team. I don't know when that's going to start. We'll probably do a couple per episode to get them all in before opening day. I have some special guests in mind and some very special guests in mind. We'll see how it goes. So those are all things you can look forward to on coming editions of Amazing Avenue Audio.